0: The Jews of Russia, at the beginning of the 19th century, lived in clearly demarcated zones. These were called the Pale of Settlement. Here they lived in the Stettles, Jewish villages and towns. This had advantages and disadvantages. On the one hand, it helped preserve and foster their own sense of being a separate nation, with a religion, tradition and history of their own. On the other hand, life in the Pale set them apart and isolated them. The Tsar Nicholas I came to the throne in 1825. He was an anti-Semite who made no secret of how he felt towards the Jews. He began working on a system to de judeize Russia. In 1827 he issued a decree on military conscription whereby all Jewish boys aged between 12 and 25 could be conscripted for a period of 25 years into the Russian army. There was also an all-out onslaught on Jewish culture. Jews were ordered to leave specific areas and were concentrated in urban ghettos. There were state trials for the old libel of ritual murder. In 1855, Nicholas was succeeded by Alexander II, under whom conditions did not improve in any substantial fashion for the Jews. But when Alexander was assassinated by a group of terrorists in 1881, amongst whom there was a Jewish seamstress, a wave of pogroms and persecutions began that swept the cities and towns of the Russian Empire. Jews in their millions fled. It is estimated that within five years, a quarter of a million Jewish families left the cities and towns of the Pale. Many of these went to the United States, but a substantial minority sought more immediate refuge in England and Ireland. Of those that went to England, many settled in the great sprawling working class area of East London, where there was a big Irish population at the time. Sarah Gadalewicz is 96 years old. She was born in Warsaw, but left Poland against a background of pogroms and persecutions and settled in Whitechapel in the early years of the century.
1: My mother and father and have six children, and my mother's sister. And a husband and six children. Sixteen, they came. Now, my father made an English passport for him, and he came here before, you see. But they came back at home, and they said to my mother, Don't start crying. Me are going, in will sell the home, and we go going. Sarah can make a living for all of us. My mother said, She's only 18 years of age, we're not gonna kill her. He said, We will not kill her, she'll live big. Well, he made a pass, so we didn't run away, you see, we went in the open. Even the baby for four years, people used to hide them under this blankets, yeah. hmm. And the mothers used to cover them with the dresses. My father wouldn't do that. He was a governor at home, He was comfortable. He said no, a pass for all the six children, and all in the open. And that's we came in the open, not nothing kind.
0: But how about the journey, the travel? Well,
1: we stopped in Berlin, in Germany. We had friends. And my father said the friends are very good, and the children, they love the children. We stayed 12 days there. The people kept us. And I was the only one to come out with my mother and father every day. The younger ones stopped at home, but the people.
0: How about crossing the border out of Poland? Did you have difficulties? Nothing,
1: nothing, nothing. We had a pass. You see, once you go with papers open, with your right names, with your right children, is no trouble. The trouble gewesen in Warsaw. That was the Cossacks. But there was no trouble. When we came to the boat, to come to the boat, I forgot that name, the country. I always forget that. So anyway, when we came there, the boats wasn't going. So my father ran about finding out. So the people come out and say, there's nothing to worry. me. We'll take you into neighbors. And you stay here a couple of days. When the boat comes from London, you'll be able to go because it was so foggy here. You see, the boats couldn't go out or in. So we stayed there for three days. They gave us to eat and to drink, lovely places to go to sleep. They took us out. Me was nicely dressed, they could see me nice people. I mean, it's all class of people, nice people, bad people. And me had a lot that time. Then me go on the boat. Me go up a bit of I don't know how far. And my father says, me can't go into London. But then me go and zoom. me got nothing to eat. Me not on the first class, me on the third class. So I got a sister two years younger than me. She's still alive, she's in San Pavel. So my sister says, Don't you worry, and I'll go up to the sailors. She goes up to the sailors, me was downstairs, the third class. My sister was a very pretty girl, I got a photo somewhere for her. And she goes up and she says to the sailors, I'm hungry. I'm I'm Polish. So we say, so my sister said yes. I couldn't, she did. I don't what think did that mean? Polish like my Hungary. Oh, yes. I want something mm-hmm. to eat. Mm-hmm. He said, I bring you up. He gets her. He says, You're a lovely girl. And I said to my father, I'm frightened. Touch Daddy, he touched her. I'm so nervous. My father says, you, you play a game like a baby? You're a growing up woman. I says, Yes, but not sailors. Anyway, it brings up a big brown bread. There are sixteen people: my mother, my father, six children, my mother's sister and her husband, and six children. Sixteen became. My mother's sister didn't want to be left there. She wanted to come with us. So we, all the lot of us we had nobody there no more. There was in America. There were on to way to other places, Edinburgh, all over the places. Anyway, they brought us up to eat, and for three days they was feeding us. From upstairs, it was the third class, they was on the first class. So it was all right. Then we came off in London from the boat. My father said, we don't know where to go. But from the Jewish Board of Garden here from London...
0: The Jewish Board of Gardens. Yes.
1: They called out, is it the name of Bloom they are a big family, 16 people... So my father heard, he says, that's all right, we're saved. We couldn't see the faces, it was all black. So my father said, where do I go? He said, look for a candle, look for a candle. And they got this man from the Jewish Botox Garden. He said, come on, I'll take you. Uh, Texas is waiting for the people to take him, where they're going. That's how they come to my auntie. And the neighbors opened the doors and put mattresses on the floor and gave us to eat. We should go and have a rest.
2: They came to, in the main, to an area known as Spittle Fields, which had long been the place where immigrant workers had come to in London. The area was originally developed by the Huguenots, although uh, Development had taken place in the area ever since uh, Henry VIII had taken over the monasteries and the um, priories and the hospitals uh, governed by the church. And development in the area started about 1640, and gradually over the years, houses and streets had been built and laid out. And the Jews coming from Eastern Europe had settled In Spitalfields, in the main, if you look at maps drawn about the time of 1870, 1880, you can see that most of those streets were occupied by Jewish families. They had displaced many of the uh, ordinary working people who lived there in the sense that the whole area has been described as one vast rookery, uh, It was notorious for the vice and gambling, houses of prostitution, Doss Houses. And gradually, as the Jewish population moved in, the indigenous population moved out. There were different racial mixtures in the area. The area had populations that were descended rather vaguely from the Yugodh, the French weavers, There were numbers of descendants of Irish labourers who had come into England in the 1840s and 1870s to do the really heavy work in building London docks, in uh, doing the heavy work in the markets. There were numbers of uh, English people who had migrated from the countryside, attracted by the uh, ability of work on the railways being built, and the whole area was one notorious as being the worst slum area, perhaps in London, perhaps uh, in the whole of England. Um, the houses were very old. Some of the houses in about the 1870s must have been over 200 years old, still standing and still housing uh, families. The common thing was that um, you had almost a family living in a room. Many of the houses were let as DOS houses, and uh, the beds were shared in that uh, a day worker would sleep in a bed at night, and when a night worker would sleep in the bed of the day. So you had this terrible area, full of verminous, uh, full of crime and corruption, on the very edge of the city of London. It, uh, there were many reports, uh, parliamentary reports published about the disgraceful state of the area, but... Until about 1880, 1890, nothing was ever done. The place just rotted away. And this was the area into which came the immigrant Jews from Poland and Russia.
1: When I came to London, I was 18 years of age. I wasn't a baby. I was a private dressmaker. And nobody in my family, my we were six children, my mother and father... And nobody could earn a penny. Because the, the trades for they had in Poland I came from Burge. It wasn't good here. But myself being a dressmaker at 18 years of age, I could make dresses for your sister, for your mother, for, the, for anybody. Well, I lived in Goldson Street. You know where it is? In a cellar and I could work night and day, but I did work 18 hours a day.
0: 18 hours a day?
1: For, the pe- for, the, for my family, it was eight people. My mother, my father, three girls and three boys. And I made a living for all of them. That was the first. At the beginning, it was dark, foggy. I went to work for three, a week and a half by somebody. To know how to say a pin or a needle or a scissors because I come from Poland, I couldn't speak English. And I wasn't educated, I never been to school. I couldn't read or write, but I could write numbers. But if I can write numbers, I can take you a measure and put the numbers on, so I'm all right. I worked a week and a half, potentially in week. We could make a living, eight people. So after a week and a half, I already had customers from the building. I was nice dressed, and they come down, they say, Sarah, make me one like you. I said, I well, I, I'm not sure you're going to pay me. I don't know what to charge. I couldn't speak English. And a cousin of mine come down from school to speak for me. So my cousin says to the lady, tell me how much you want to pay for the dress. My cousin doesn't know. So she says, I'll give her two pounds if she makes me a dress like she wears. <coughs> it had a little embroidery, And there is an embroidering, I don't know where to go. She said, I'll take you. I say, thank you. Thank you. It's easy, good afternoon, thank you. And that's how I become bigger and bigger.
3: If you can imagine an immigrant coming to the Pool of London, say near Tower Bridge, a, a picture, a beautiful picture is painted by um, Beatrice Potto, later became Beatrice Webb, showing these poor, naive grinners, as they were called, grinners, newcomers, innocents. Scarves over their heads, the women, the men with long beards, caftans, large boots, alien-looking. They come abroad, onto the docks, most of them just carrying their betgevant, that is, their bedding on their shoulders, and perhaps a bag containing their worldly possessions that... They were lucky to have got out of Russia. the few things left from which they had not been robbed. If they were lucky, they were greeted by a lansman, that is, a person who'd arrived beforehand and was waiting to take them to a place to live. But in the early 80s and 90s, very few had lansman here. And so they came, greeners, into a strange alien country. Unfortunately, there were some people to greet them at the dockside. That was the Jewish temporary shelter which sent out its officers to take them in to a house which was leased in Lemon Street in the east end of London. And there they would guide these poor, bewildered foreigners through the narrow side streets of Allgate and Whitechapel and there are many cases as they're making their way towards a temporary shelter when the local boys and girls and the local uh, inhabitants would throw stones at them. They were very unpopular because they were aliens strange looking speaking an alien tongue shabby Eye streaming because of the, the bad air that they'd experienced in the folds of the ship. And then they come to the temporary shelter where they are given food and shelter for the night, the first rest for the poor and weary stranger. Here they could be allowed to stay for up to 14 days. And then they were released into the strange world of Whitechapel the world of the sweatshop, the tailor shop, cabinet makers. And if they were lucky, a lunchman, a fellow coming from the same village, originally would get him a job. Here, he or she, even she, might be forced to sleep on the very table where she performed her task as a tailor or a tailoress. Because accommodation was scarce. And in this furtied air, these people worked from day and night. Highly competitive, of course there was a, a great supply of labour, for, and particularly as um, the uh, occupations were seasonal, there was a great slack season, there was primitive competition for work amongst Jews themselves. The majority living on the margin of subsistence. They had a very, very poor reception. The indigenous
2: population, the people living there, didn't like them. Uh, It was said that they took away jobs from uh, the people living there, but this is quite untrue because none of the poor immigrant Jews uh, could do or understood the work that the uh, native population were doing. The more aristocratic Jewish community didn't like the Polish refugees simply because they couldn't speak English. They had different cultural and social background. And uh, the aristocratic Jews were rather afraid of their own position. In uh, They had, had the newly won rights. Uh, the first Jew was elected to Parliament and they'd been admitted to the Council of the City of London. And you had these poor, dirty, slovenly I mean, it, it couldn't be helped... Uh, people coming in, and they weren't very welcome at all. In fact, uh, when the immigration started getting underway, emissaries were sent to Poland and Russia to ask these Jews not to come, because they'd only exasperate any of the conditions in East London. But they did. They they came across, and wherever they landed, they settled. And as London docks were so near to uh, Spitalfields, they came and they settled in Spitalfields and um, looked for work which often wasn't there, so they borrowed a few pounds or set up a little workshop in a house, or they uh, set up a little corner shop, and uh, as most of them um, had no actual training, they became tailors. Now, tailor is a word, an umbrella word that covers all sorts of uh, sections of the garment industry. Now, the area had been noted for about 300 years as a centre of garment industry. Uh, You had records showing that the name Petticoat Lane, which is on the edge of the uh, area, had been the centre for weaving from about 1620, it had been noted then. because of the presence of the uh, teasel fields, the teasels used in dressing the cloth, the whole area had attracted weavers and cloth makers. The Huguenots had strengthened this tradition by their weaving in the old houses they built. Uh, The Irish came in as uh, we uh, assistant German weavers and so many of the Jews went into um, the clothing industry. But Uh, it shouldn't be thought that that was all they were. Actually, uh, the tobacco trade had attracted more Jews about the middle of the 19th century than any other trade. It was traditionally associated with the Dutch Jews who'd come, forming a a body of immigrants in the middle of the 19th century. And about the 1860s, uh, of the 3,500 workers in the tobacco cigar-making industry, about 2,300 were Dutch Jews and... About 900 were Polish, and the rest were Greek and German. So they had a a good standing in tobacco industry. They had also been on the edge of the area, on the edge of Spitalfields, in an area known as Duke's Place, the luxury fruit market. And uh, Jews were were famous for the fact that they sold the luxury fruits such as oranges and lemons and nuts uh, in that area. And so they went into these trades where there was traditionally a Jewish occupation. And um, those that took up tailoring, it was because um, uh, a lot of the tailoring was what is known as slop tailoring, you know, cheap tailoring. And uh, they went into those trades because they were easy, and anyway, uh, they were employed by their kinsfolk. And so uh, this was the reception they had.
0: Bill Fishman is a lecturer in history and political science, at Queen Mary's College, University of London, he is a lifelong student of the politics and social history of East London, and his book, Jewish East End Radicals, deals with the period 1880 to 1914.
3: Well, impoverished as they were, they were also outcasts of the community because the indigenous or the indigenous community did not look with much happiness. on these bizarre invaders. They spoke a different language. They spoke Yiddish. They had a different culture. They kept themselves to themselves simply because they they were bewildered in most cases. And uh, being an alien community, they tended to to stay apart for protection. It's it's a norm amongst uh, 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 strangers from abroad who come to any new country. Therefore, they were outcasts not only from the uh, host community, but also from the, in a way, from Anglo Jewry, who, as I said before, regarded them as a bit of a nuisance and possibly a threat. That the need was to better their conditions, to be accepted by their own working class comrades, non Jewish working class comrades. And this leadership, or this radical leadership was brought in from outside by Russo-Polish intelligentsia who had fled from Tsarist persecution during the 1870s. And it was this intellectual elite who came to London, who could speak Yiddish and Russian, who saw their own people living on the margin of subsistence, It was they who gave the impetus towards radicalisation in East London. Men like Aaron Lieberman, who came from the pale, an intellectual fleeing from the Russian police, comes to East London, sees the horror of his people in the sweatshops, spurned by anglo jewry to a certain extent and also by their own non-Jewish working-class comrades, Aaron Lieberman in 1876, here in East London, who brings together ten working men in a little slum house in Spitalfields, and on the 20th of May, 1876, draws up the first Yiddish socialist constitution in the history of the Jewish people. For six months, a Jewish socialist party emerged in East London mainly amongst the tailors their aim fighting for better conditions of labour i.e. forming a trade union movement for the first time in their experience as well as the idealist the idealist uh, concept of changing society for all men they called on their Gentile brothers uh, uh, for aid and they got it there were joint meetings held but alas the Anglo-Jewish establishment through its paper the Jewish Chronicle the Jewish rabbis railed against the socialist atheists from the pulpit and in public meetings even hired thugs to break up socialist and trade union meetings which had been stimulated by Lieberman's group well it only lasted six months Lieberman went off to America and disappeared but here continuity was maintained by one of his disciples the most beloved of all Yiddish folk poets Maurice Finchewski the socialist folk poet who spoke to the people in their own language but not only wrote poetry for them he organised them and founded the first Yiddish socialist newspaper in the history of the Jewish people again here in East London the Polish Yiddel there were 14, um, 14 issues before the usual doctrinal um, wrangling, split the small group and then Morris Finchevsky became editor of the long-lasting Arbeiter Freund, the worker's friend a great international libertarian socialist newspaper which in the 1890s had the fortune to be taken over not by a Jew but by a German emigre Rudolf Rocker born a German Catholic who lived with a a Jewish anarchist Russo-Jewish anarchist woman learned Yiddish became in fact the radical guru of the Jews of the East End and was offered the editorship of this international libertarian paper and for almost 20 years he became the educator of the immigrant Jewish poor of Whitechapel. He introduced the Russian Jews to Western literature, helped to translate the great epic poems, the great books of Western literature into Yiddish. In fact, the Jews themselves has, have conceived in this German Catholic, the found, one of the founding fathers, of modern Yiddish literature and one of the sole remaining great figures of the ghetto the lone Yiddish poet Avraham Stenzel still walks the streets of Whitechapel communing with ghosts, still writing poetry in the Mamaloshan, the mother language writing for a people who have departed for he still breathes the past and blooms the old delicatessen. There you can still smell the Hamish of food brought that the Jews brought with them from their old land, from the Hamer, the Haimland from Russia.
0: The Jews who came from Eastern Europe found the religious services of Anglo Jewry somewhat strange and different to what they had seen in the homeland. Montague Richardson works with the Jewish Institute in Whitechapel. Well, they presented a bit of
4: a problem, because uh, superficially they came from the same religious background, in the sense that the old Anglo-Jewish community was officially an orthodox community, and most Jews in England subscribed to orthodox Judaism, and uh, Hebrew was the language of prayer, and the uh, the service was exactly the same service, but <laughs> the conduct of the service varied considerably because the older English community in many ways taken on the pattern of the Church of England uh, dignity, decorum, uh, formality, even the dress of their rabbis was similar to the the garb of a Church of England uh, ministers. So when these uh, new orthodox uh, immigrants came from abroad and they went into a uh, synagogue, uh, they knew the language because it was Hebrew. They followed the prayers or the order of service, but they really didn't feel very comfortable because they were expected to sit quietly, uh, not uh, speak. And um, in a uh, traditional Jewish service, is a much warmer atmosphere than the normal Church of England service. Uh, silence is not the uh, significant uh, factor. And by and now they really felt un- uncomfortable. The um, older Anglo-Jewish community would, on the Sabbath or festival, would be uh, sitting there in a frock coat and top hat uh, and uh, they wondered what on earth they'd come into. So they very quickly Established their own, the equivalent of uh, little chapels or stieblach as they were called and very often it was the people either from the same village who banded together for prayer or perhaps even people in the same trade I think not far from here along Brick Lane uh, there was um, a working man's synagogue which uh, was uh, patronized primarily by cabinet makers but mostly it was the, the unit of uh, landslide, uh, the term is used people who came from the same uh, village or, or township, uh, and they like to reestablish themselves, their,
0: their group in worship,
4: as in every, anything else.
0: David Simberlist has made a specialist study of the Jewish theater, and it was his great-grandfather, David Smith, who founded the first Yiddish theater in Britain. My great-grandfather had come to England, as far as I can trace, about
2: 1870-odd, 75, 76. I've traced that he had a shop on the corner of Dorset Street and Crispin Street. The first record I can find is 1879, so that means the shop was in existence in 1878. In 1883, by an imperial euchus, uh, 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 an order from the Tsar himself, Added to all the other oppressions of the Jewish population, the Yiddish theatre was banned throughout Europe, throughout Russia and Poland. And this caused consternation. Many of these travelling players had nowhere to go, nothing, nothing to do. And so they started making their way westward. Now, amongst these was one named Jacob Adler. He had been acting in Odessa, when the UCAS came into force. And he took his wife and family and a small company of players and wended his way across Europe. It took him a month to come to London. And when he came to London, he was appalled. The conditions in Whitechapel and Spitalfields where he'd landed were far worse than anything he'd seen in all his travels throughout Russia and the Paleo Settlement the social conditions, the housing conditions. It's a difficult thing to conceive, but he, he he has recorded this. And he went for assistance to the established Jewish community, and they refused to give it to him. They didn't want to know. First of all, he was an actor, and actors are notoriously free-living, and, that, and uh, they would distract the attention of the religious Jews. Secondly, he spoke Yiddish, which they deplore they didn't want these Jews to speak they wanted them to become English gentlemen and thirdly um, they had no base I mean who were they they were just wandering players and Jacob Adler went from cafe to cafe and hall to hall trying to set up a company and a place a venue a proper establishment where he could perform his repertoire of plays my great Great-grandfather had heard of him or seen him play. I'm never sure just how it came. But anyway, in 1885, uh, my great-grandfather, David Smith, put up the money, over £3,000, £3, and that was a lot of money in those days, to build a theatre for Adler and his troupe. Now, this theatre was built... Behind a house in Princelet Street, now, then known as Prince's Street, it had been an old Huguenot house with a big warehouse at the back. And my great-grandfather had this converted into a proper theatre. Now, it wasn't a shanty-built place. It wasn't uh, a fit-up. There was seating for about five or 600 people. There was a bar, there was a reading room, there was a games room. Uh, It was for membership only, but membership was nominal. You bought a ticket and paid a shilling membership, as it were. And um, immediately, the theatre was a great success. Now, Jacob Adler was so happy that he'd had a home and he started putting on plays for the Jewish community and he had packed houses. Uh, the older generation were enthralled by the dramas, the melodramas, the music, the singing, the acting, the warmth, the light. They, they, they had something to go to and do. And their humdrum lives were lightened by Ed Lenny's He had offers from America, and oh, as far as I know, he refused everyone. He was so happy in London. But the club, the Hebrew Dramatic Club aroused the envy and hatred of many of the cafe owners and those who ran the gambling clubs in and around the area. It took trade away from them, and um, they didn't like it at all. Now, as I said, there was never any shortage of principal actors. All those people en route from, to the Americas, from Poland and Russia, stopped off at Smith's Theatre Club for a short time to put in performances. Now, the theatre prospered, and as I've said, aroused a lot of envy. Now, a lot of the performances were in the forms of benefits. Uh, if there was a, a poor co-religionist who was on hard times, somebody took the theatre, paid the expense of the actors, and then all the profits went to this person. And in January 1887, uh, a, a play was on, and uh, the house was crowded. Uh, the play was The uh, Gypsy Princess... And towards about 11 o'clock at night, drawing to its close, suddenly there was somewhere from the auditorium, and nobody's ever checked it where it's from, came a cry, fire. It was in Yiddish, the language in which they were acting. And the audience suddenly panicked. Uh, a few moments later, somebody turned off the gaslighting, and the panic increased the chaos. The people coming down from the gallery met with the people in the foyer coming in out of the stalls and the people who were outside already rushed back in and so you had this human mass of people trying to rescue, trying to escape now under normal circumstances the place was quite uh, as an ordinary theatre it had no licence because it was a private club under normal circumstances everything would have been all right. but these poor people who only a few years before had been subject to Cossack reprisals and persecution suddenly they hear fire and they panicked it could have happened in any community in any part of the world the tragic end was that within a few moments 17 people were killed uh, the scenes in the east end of London were terrible I mean, everybody knew the club and the dead were from an old man of about 80 odd to young children and there was great mourning. The place was visited by the Chief Rabbi and Sir Samuel Montagu, and a uh, benefit list was set up. And uh, because of Jewish custom, uh, the burials have to take very take place very quickly after the death. And the next few days, the scenes in East London were terrible. They were heartrending. You can imagine, you know, seventeen carriages, seventeen funerals going through the streets in East London. The houses were draped in black. The church, the, uh, all the places of entertainment were closed, the synagogue doors were left open, and the burials were given at night. And you can imagine the harrowing scenes in the cemeteries. Now, I mentioned earlier on the reception these Jews had had from their co religionists, and it's much to the disgrace of the Jewish press that they, they uh, uh, rather said that uh, this wouldn't have happened if the Jewish people in the East End had learned to have more phlegm and take these things more calmly. And I don't know what they expected of these... This is the Jewish Chronicle now. The Jewish Chronicle. It's recorded. I mean, you can look it up in the files. I've studied the reports in the Times, and they're pretty detailed, and it's obvious from the evidence given. One, one can draw the conclusion that the whole thing was engineered by a competitor rival of my great-grandfather who wanted the place closed and thought that this would be the way to do it, never realising the the consequences. There is recorded in the evidence that there was a policeman on duty outside the door because of threats to my grandfather and great-grandfather, but nothing could be pinned down.
0: Well, that was the death of the Jewish theatre, the Yiddish theatre in London, In 1905, the Pavilion Theatre in Whitechapel was set up as a Yiddish theatre, but it never succeeded in reaching the heights of Smith's Theatre Club. Today, the children of the ghetto have fled. The Jews have moved up the social ladder and live in the leafy, salubrious suburbs of London. The Jewish population of the East End has dropped from 120,000 to 5, but the streets and lanes of Whitechapel and Spitalfields are still alive with the history and memories of other days and turbulent years.